Right, well, uh, back to the book of Haggai. Uh, we'll be doing chapter 2 tonight, and we'll basically be <coughs> finishing tonight. Uh, there are three messages to go, all three fairly short, and, and we'll find that we can cover them, I think, uh, quite, quite comfortably in one talk. Um, so, remember what we've seen. They're building the temple, they've gone back into the land, they're rebuilding the temple, and of course the picture that we've got here is of a people, prophets, urging them on to get back to the work they should have been doing but had lapsed on and building the temple, God's house. And of course we've seen the application to us is our own individual Christian lives and our lives together corporately um, as, as the church. So let's dive straight in and um, I'll read message number three first and this is um, chap uh, verses one to nine. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory. How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and the desired of all nations will come and that was a messianic title the desired of all nations or the desire of women was you know in the old testament times the greatest privilege would have been to be the woman who would bear the messiah so that's talking about the coming of jesus there so the desired of all nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Now, what this first message is saying, it's answering a particular process of thought that's going through the people's minds. They're getting back to work. Uh, you know, Haggai has urged them on. They've repented of the fact that they were slack and had given the work up and put their own desires and wants before the Lord. And uh, now they're getting, they're getting back to work. But what, what they're thinking of now is that they're comparing their labours on this temple as they're rebuilding it 
and what they're they're doing they look at the you know they're looking at what they've accomplished so far but they're looking back to Solomon's day when the temple was brand new in all its splendor and the temple of Solomon was a much more elaborate affair than this one was and what they're doing is that because they're looking back to the temple as it was in Solomon's day they're looking at the work they're doing now on the temple as it was then and they're feeling that compared to how it was what we're doing here this is a bit insignificant they're thinking compared to Solomon's temple this one's a little bit tin pot and that's what's going through their minds and that is what the Lord is answering through Haggai um, in this particular uh, word from him and of course what the Lord is saying to the people is that look it's not the end results that matter what matters is that I am with you and that you're doing what I'm telling you to do so they were building the temple the Lord was with them and what he's saying that is all that matters my spirit is with you you're doing my will therefore the fact that the temple you're working on now is not as of this time comparable in glory to the temple as it was when Solomon built it that doesn't matter what matters is you're doing my will and what's happening is the people they're getting what I call a spiritual inferiority complex they're kind of thinking oh this isn't you know this isn't as as big as it was in Solomon's day what we're doing it's kind of, it's tin pot it, it doesn't look very impressive does it and of course the thing about this temple is that remember unlike the temple of Solomon the Ark of the Covenant isn't there that was like the treasure chest Aaron's bud was in it and you know the tablets from the Ten Commandments that wasn't there because it had been lost uh, the Urim and the Thummim these devices that a high priest would use sometimes to get words from the Lord they weren't there and neither was what they called the Shekinah glory you know like the the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night none of those things which characterize the temple of Solomon are here happening as they're rebuilding the temple at this point in history and so because of that they're looking back and they're thinking this is insignificant and they're thinking oh you know almost like what's the point and they're getting all downcast because it just doesn't seem to be very much when looking back at what happened uh, in the days of Solomon and of course what we've we've got here is the equivalent would be uh, you know say for instance uh, you know sort of people looking back shall we say to the early church when God isn't doing amongst them what he was doing amongst the early church and it's thinking well compared to the early church the, it seems also tin pot now you know like there's all what God was doing then but he doesn't seem to be doing it now and it's sort of thinking, oh this all seems so insignificant compared to what God was doing then and of course the key to it is that God does different things at different times and so therefore the question all the time that we must ask ourselves and every believer must is simply this am I being faithful to what God requires of me never mind what God is or isn't doing you know sort of like what he might be doing elsewhere or might have done in the past 
Never mind what God is or isn't doing now, the question is, am I being faithful? So here, God is saying to them, this seems to you as nothing. He's saying, but that doesn't matter. I am with you, be strong. And they needed to be encouraged all the more precisely because they weren't seeing what Solomon saw. I mean, in the days of Solomon, Israel was at the zenith of its power. All the surrounding Gentile nations, they used to come and pay tribute to Solomon. You know, I mean, all the, the, you know, the Queen of Sheba came and Solomon was the man. Israel at that point was the place to be. It was the in-nation. And God was there in great splendor and when they built the temple, it was unbelievable. All right? Now, that was fantastic. But they were seeing so much of the glory of God. It was there in front of their eyes. Now, these people are pioneering a new work. After all that has gone, been swept away. After the exile. And in some ways, these guys, they needed more faith than Solomon. They needed more faith than the Israelites then. Because far from being at the zenith of power, Israel now, well, it doesn't actually exist. They are the people who have been sent back by King Cyrus to rebuild the nation from scratch. And far from the surrounding Gentile nations paying tribute to Israel and Israel being the in, in, the in nation, Israel now is mocked and laughed at by all the nations. And it's a very, very difficult situation that these people are in. And that is why God keeps saying, look, don't bother that it seems so small to you. It doesn't matter that you feel that it's nothing when you compare it to the past. Be strong, I am with you. And notice again and again and again, says the Lord Almighty, because what matters is not whether mighty things are happening, it's whether the Lord Almighty is with us and we're in his will. So miracles may come, miracles may go. The question is, are we in God's will? And the reason that through Haggai, God goes on to say, look, you know, the heaven is mine and the earth is mine and I'm going to shake the heavens and I'm going to shake the earth. The reason that God's saying that is he says, look, I want you to realise here you are building me a temple and you think it's not very impressive. But at the end of the day, even Solomon's temple, compared to the impressiveness of God, that wasn't very impressive either. And God's saying, I'm not actually too concerned about the bricks and mortar here. I own the heavens and the earth. I am the Lord Almighty. But what he goes on to say is that there was something about this little, as they were seeing it, tin pot temple compared to Solomon's. God didn't think it was tin pot, but they did, that's the point. But there was something about this temple that they were building that they hadn't thought of. It hadn't occurred to them. All they were doing was looking back and comparing it to the past, to what God had done in the time of Solomon. But what they weren't taking into account, and what the Lord is saying here, he's saying, look, the desire of the nations will come, and he then goes on to say, the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. The former house, that was the temple of Solomon, that had long been destroyed, right? And God is saying, you're looking in the wrong direction, lads. They're looking back to King Solomon's temple and saying, this isn't very impressive compared to that. 
And God says, no, don't look back, look forward. And of course the point is that the desire of nations was going to come. Now, the Temple of Solomon had the Shekinah glory in it, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. But of course, something else was going to happen in this temple that they were now building. And it was that four or five hundred years later, that's not quite, yeah, around that, the man whom God became was going to worship there. Jesus was actually going to frequent this temple that they're building. But it was something for the future. And the point is, when God became a man, when Jesus was walking amongst men, in him the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in bodily form. He was actually far more glorious and it was far more uh, radically the presence of God to have Jesus there than it was to have the Shekinah glory. And this temple that they're building now was going to be the temple that eventually the Son of God, God himself, was going to frequent worshipping and teaching. So this temple that they're building is eventually going to know God's presence in a way that no other building in history ever had. And can you see what it is they're doing? They're doing a, oh, this is, this is so small, this is so mundane compared to what it should be. That's what they're doing. That's where they're at. All right. Now, if you go over to Zechariah, the next book, all right, remember Zechariah worked with Haggai. And we're going to read a prophecy that the Lord gave Zechariah for the same people three months later. All right? Now, Zechariah chapter 4 and 5, verse 6. And this is what we read. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. See, the same bloke, governor of Israel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Because what matters isn't necessarily whether you're seeing God's power and God's might. You may or you may not. But what matters is his spirit is with you. That's what matters. Because sometimes God isn't doing mighty things. Other times he is. But he is always with us by his spirit. That doesn't change. And he says, What are you, O mighty mountain? Before, before Zerubbabel you will become level ground. <coughs> Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. That's the capstone, the very last stone that went on. This is talking about, however hard it seems, you will finish the temple, and in that day when, you're, you, know, when you put the last stone in place, then you'll, you'll say, God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. This is, you know, obviously, Zechariah speaking. Who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. And of course, the point is that what God is saying to the people, he's saying, look, do not despise the day 
of small things. Because in God's plan, there, there are the days of big things. But there are the days of small things. And he's saying to his people, make sure that you don't despise the day of small things. I.e., so when it seems that God seemingly isn't doing very much, as long as you're being faithful, as long as you're in his will, as long as the Lord is with you, that's all that matters. Don't look down on it. Don't feel that, oh, this is nothing. This, this isn't, you know, sort of like, you know, in other places God's doing this, that and the other. In the past God's done this, that and the other. But that's fine. Praise the Lord for whatever he's doing anywhere. But all that matters to us, to any individual Christian, is what God's doing in them. And it may be a day of big things, it may be a day of small things. If it's a day of small things, here God is saying to his people, don't despise it. The day of small things is equally his will, as is the day of big things. Again and again and again, we've seen this principle, haven't we, in regards to our Christian lives. In the world, it's summed up by, you know, it's the sort of thing like Granny used to say, if you look after the pennies, the pounds will look after themselves. That's always the principle. Take care of the little things, be faithful in the little things, and you can leave the big things to the Lord. If we make sure that we're doing what's possible, we can't do much, can we? That's not very impressive. doesn't matter. As long as we're making sure that we're doing what we can, what is possible, then we can happily leave the impossible in God's hands. So therefore, don't despise the day of small things. Remember, what I'm saying is, they didn't realise that Jesus himself was going to eventually go to that temple. They didn't know that. And can you see that here, they were actually a link in a chain. And there are times as God's will unfolds, that there are periods in history, maybe periods in our own lives, where it's a link in a chain. And maybe it's the link in the chain where nothing much is happening. But it's all part of the progression of God moving towards something very much bigger. Because the point is, if they weren't being faithful now to build this, as they saw it, little tin pot temple, if they weren't being faithful, there, and remember, they hadn't been faithful, they'd stopped. This is why Haggai was raised up to say, let's get going again. Now they're going again, all right? But if they hadn't got going again, if they hadn't built this little, inverted commas, tin pot temple, Jesus couldn't have gone to it all those years later. So even though they never saw the glory of God in this temple they were building, my goodness, what a vitally important role they actually played, even though they never saw the infinitely great thing that God was going to do in regards to that temple. So can you see the point? They were looking back at what God did in Solomon's day. They were saying, oh, what we're doing now seems so insignificant compared to that, when what they weren't taking into account is that what they were doing in their day was actually a vital link in the chain. They were part of God's plan to get something ready that eventually was going to be something even greater than what happened in the day of Solomon. They were getting the temple ready for Jesus to go there. Can you see? 
And so often, when we think God isn't, do- God doesn't seem to be doing anything. Well, as long as we know that we're in His will, as long as we're at peace about that, well, who knows? We can never know at any one time where we are in regards to the link of that chain, as it were. But all that we leave with God, the Lord knows what He's doing. And even though one might think, you know, sort of, oh, it seems to be so quiet, so uneventful, I know that I can look back in my own Christian life on some of the times that I would say were, oh, so quiet and uneventful. You know, when, I mean, if God was around, you wouldn't know it except just by blind faith, hanging on to the Word of God. But as I look back, those times actually prepared me for some of the most important things that God's ever done in my life. They were actually the really important times. If you go to um, Hebrews and uh, see, see this thing brought out a bit in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11 chapter 11 and find verse 39. Now, this is talking about all the saints throughout Old Testament times. All the people in the Old Testament who serve the Lord faithfully. Now, listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about them. These were all commended for their faith, and Abraham's in there, Samson is in there, they're all in there, all right? And of course, all the ones that no one's ever heard of. He says, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Now then, what had been promised? They were waiting, one, for the coming of Messiah. Well, they lived and died and didn't see that. And two, they were waiting to be glorified and to be raised up in a resurrection of immortality. That hadn't happened to them either. He says, look, God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. You see, what the saints didn't know in the Old Testament is that they were part of Israel. They didn't know that the church age was going to come. And there were all sorts of things that they were promised, that they worked towards. The plan of salvation couldn't have happened if it hadn't been for their faithfulness in God unfolding his plan. But they never lived to see what they so desperately wanted to see because God was waiting to bless us along with them. And they're waiting still. But my goodness, they're going to get what they were promised eventually. Can you see? But although they worked faithfully, they never saw the fruit of their labours. That was for others. They laboured seeing nothing in regards to these things, but later on, others, as it were, received the blessing that had come through them. And if, if you go to 1 Peter, just after Hebrews, a couple of books on, 1 Peter, chapter 1, and uh, read uh, verse 10, 10 to 12. And he says, concerning this salvation, and again, he's talking now of the believers in the Old Testament times, before the coming of Jesus. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, 
even angels long to look into these things. And there again, he's saying all these people in the Old Testament, through their faithfulness, they never saw what they were so desperately working towards. They never saw the coming of the Messiah. They never saw the fulfilment of all the promises that they had from God about salvation coming and God coming amongst them. They never saw that. But they were links in the chain that was working up to the point in history when Jesus did come in the fullness of time, as the Bible says. And so therefore, they didn't see the things that they longed for, but nevertheless, they were vital links in the chain. How daft if they'd have like been thinking, oh, what we're doing is so insignificant because we can't, you know, Messiah's not coming, blah, blah, blah. What they were doing was vital, absolutely vital. They were necessary links in the chain. And it's only when you kind of realise, yes, but although I can't see God doing much now, and although I can see he's done great things in the past, the key is I'm going to stay faithful because who knows what he's going to do in the future. But then at the end of the day, you might not see very much at all. But it might be your faithfulness now that enables that blessing to be passed on to the next generation who might see all the things that we would long to see for now, you know, that we'd long to see now. One of the very famous sayings in the English language is, is this, they also serve who only stand and wait. And there are times when soldiers actually have wars to fight in. There are times when they don't. But they're still soldiers. And as long as they're being faithful to their duty and being obedient to their commanding officer. And of course, we've got to contrast this today with the thinking that is so all, all around us in the church today, with it sort of like, big is beautiful all the time. Uh, you know, numbers, results, uh, public exposure, it's all big, 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 isn't it? And if it's not big, 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 then what's wrong with your church? You're obviously not praying, you're obviously not believing. And, you know, everyone wanting to get media attention and we're going to take the country for Jesus and all this sort of stuff. Well, when God does big things, that's great. Because that's his will. And it's the will of God that matters. And that's fantastic when God does big things. But when God is doing small things, those small things are as much his will and as much glorifying to him as the big things are when the big things are his will. But we very much get surrounded by a culture in the church today that only the big things will do. That somehow, if the big things aren't happening, and my goodness, we pray that they will, we pray on. Because who knows, it might be us praying Maybe for, you know, sort of like for revival, for instance. It might be our generation praying and not seeing it that's going to bring revival to the next generation. Who knows? But at the end of the day, as long as God does his will, and as long as we're being faithful, that is what matters. So you mustn't be influenced by this, well, unless God's doing big things amongst you, there's obviously something you're not believing, brother. You know, you're, well, if we're not, you know, I mean, if there's anything wrong with us, obviously, we've got to put that right. But the point is, there is a day of small things. And this is why I keep saying, what mattered at the time of Haggai was that they were doing his will. It was Satan who was trying to discourage them with, oh, what a little, what, what a tin pot little work you're doing compared to what Solomon did, compared to what Israel did then. And it was depressed, it was getting them down. And, and here's God speaking, saying, no, don't, don't despise Dave, small things. 
be strong. I'm the Lord Almighty. My spirit is with you. And anyway, what you're involved in is going to eventually issue in greater glory than what Solomon did, even though they never lived to see it. Well, how wonderful if they had have lived to see it, but they didn't. And for us, so many of the things that we pray for, if only we live to see them. You know, like really praying to see many, many people come to know the Lord. If only we live to see it. I hope we do. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But if we don't, that doesn't matter. As long as we've been faithful in praying, in serving the Lord, in following him, in doing our bit, as it were, in regards to it. God is very, very happy with small things. It's funny, we, another little phrase we have in the English language, we say the devil's in the details, don't we? Well, I'll tell you something, the Lord is as well. And it's the little details. I'll tell you, it is far more important to God what we are than what we do. And remember, Jesus said, look, not one hair of your head will fall to the ground unless your father knows it. He's numbered the hairs of your head. Look, that is not very big. For those listening on the tape, I've just pulled a clump of hair out. But it's not very big. But the Lord has taken, he's noted, God Almighty had noted that I've lost two hairs now. The sparrows, what more insignificant part of nature can you get? But not one of them falls to the ground, but that the Father takes notice of it and knows about it. So, the day of small things is as important to us as the day of big things. Because what is important to us is that the Lord's will is being done. Go to Revelation and uh, first chapters of Revelation are taken up with letters that Jesus dictated to John and had sent to seven churches of the time. And um, if you find chapter 3 and verse 8, I want to actually um, just read one of the things that he said to the church at Philadelphia, which was a place, not a snack, right? not a soft cheese, it was a place. Um, and in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 8, now this is God writing, you know, writing to, to this church, listen to what he says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, one of the significant things about that is that out of the seven churches, five of them get quite told off about things. I mean, they were praised for the things that were right, but five of them got quite a ticking off for certain things, all right? Only two of the churches were not rebuked for anything at all. There was nothing wrong with them that the Lord thought was worth mentioning. Wow, that's what I'd love us to be at Chigwell. No, nothing that wrong that it's worth mentioning, is it right? In a letter, you know, from Jesus. And the other church was Smyrna. That wasn't rebuked for anything at all. So we know that this church at Philadelphia, the Lord had no complaint about it at all. And he says, I know that you have little strength, but you've been faithful. Now, you can't avoid a picture of a church there almost struggling to survive. 
so surrounded by a culture that the I mean, for, for, I mean, some churches virtually took over the cities they were in. That was fantastic, and God does that sometimes. This church, far from it, probably on the verge of extinction. But the Lord said, "I know you've got little strength." He says, "You've been faithful." He wasn't saying, "Where's your strength? Where's your faith? I want to do big things, but I can't." He said, "You've been faithful." And it's because they were being faithful that God could have done big things if he'd wanted to. Obviously, he didn't. And if you want to say, yeah, but Beresford, why wouldn't God want to do big things through a church? Well, I'll tell you, because sometimes he doesn't. That's the answer. That's biblical. I mean, here, I mean, we have a vision for the future. We're, we're praying for great things. We have a great God. But at the moment, we're very much seeing a day of small things. I'd go further than that. We're virtually having a decade of small things, aren't we? But as long as we're being faithful, that's fine. Because if we're being faithful, anything big, anything dramatic, anything what you might call powerful that God wants to do, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if he did? Let's keep praying that he does. But if we're being faithful now, in the day of small things, then we can know the day of big things ain't going to be a problem. Because if the Lord's got big things for us in the future, he'll do it. If he hasn't, he won't. What does it matter? As long as God's will is being done. And so that was this first message, all right? Or well, it was the second message. We saw the first one last week. But this was what God was saying to the people. They were saying, oh, this seems so insignificant, so tin pot compared to what God has done in Israel in the past, and they were think they were drooping. They were thinking, "Oh, it just a oh Lord, what you know? Why aren't you doing more?" And the Lord was saying, "Look, just be encouraged, be encouraged, because it's a day of small things." But He was saying to them as well, "This small thing that you think it's a small thing, well, okay, this thing that you think is such a small thing is going to end up bigger than Solomon's temple ever was, because I'm going to become a man." and I'm going to visit that temple, and I'm going to teach in that temple, and I'm going to stand on the streets of Jerusalem, and I'm going to preach the gospel, and I'm going to stand by that temple and use it as an illustration for what I'm saying to the people. Wow. They were linking the chain, and that's all that matters. Stay faithful. Be encouraged. It doesn't matter if we're in a day of small things. Right, okay, let's move on to the next thing. But um, if that isn't profound enough, we've got two more to go. Right. That's an encouraging one, that is. That's, that's kind of, right? Now where, um, this one, I'll, I'll bet this has baffled you when you've read this, because of course you've all read this loads of times. Each time you read your Bible through, obviously you get to this again. Right, okay, verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If a person carries consecrated meat in the fold of his garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? Or holy, same word, consecrated, holy. The priests answered, no. Then Haggai said, 
If a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. Now, give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone comes to a heap of twenty measures, there are only ten. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw fifty measures, there are only twenty. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew and hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, Give careful thought to the day when the Lord's foundation of the temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on I will bless you. Now, probably quite obvious what that means, but I'll, I'll explain it anyway. <laughs> right. It's what Haggai is doing here. He's using the ceremonial law of Moses or an aspect of the ceremonial law of Moses to illustrate what he's saying. And of course, as with everything in the Old Testament, the external represents the internal, all right? So all the laws to do with external things, they all relate to spiritual truths concerning our lives as we follow the Lord. Now, what he's saying here, he says, look, if you've got, all right, a bit of meat that has been consecrated or made holy or set apart from God in the temple for a sacrifice or something, this bit of meat, it becomes holy. So it represents the holiness of God, all right? And he says that if you're carrying that in your cloak, because the cloak is carrying the bit of meat, the cloak is made holy because it's carrying the bit of meat. But if the cloak that is carrying the bit of meat touches anything else, it doesn't make that holy. All right? So a cloak carrying a bit of holy meat, the cloak becomes holy, but if it touches something else, it doesn't make that holy. And then the second point is that if you've got someone who's been defiled, made unclean by touching a dead body, because under the law of Moses, if you touched a dead body, you were unclean, all right? You were unholy, all right? If someone has been defiled, made unclean by touching a dead body, then until they are made clean, everything and everyone they touch becomes unholy. So the point is, if there's something holy about you, if you touch other things and other people, it doesn't make them holy. But if there's something unholy about you, everyone and everything you touch, you make it unholy. So the difference is, the holiness hardly spreads at all. But the unholiness spreads like wildfire. And that's the push that Haggai is saying here. So what we've got is the simple truth, and this is the Lord challenging them again, the simple thought that uncleanness spreads 
so much more readily than holiness does. And of course, we know from our own experience that this is absolutely true. Because we are sinners and because we live in a fallen world. And the point that God's making in this prophecy is that he's reminding them, and this goes back to the first prophecy that we saw last week, he's reminding them that prior to them resuming the work on the temple, they were out of fellowship with him. Remember, they started work on the temple when they first got back into the land, and then it lapsed. And they were all busy into their own houses, weren't they, rather than the Lord's house. And for 15 years they'd been doing their own thing. They were out of fellowship. They were like following the Lord in name only. They weren't actually following the Lord with, with their day-to-day lives, all right. And so what God is saying, that when that was their condition, before they got back into fellowship with God, before they started building the temple and being obedient again, all right, then they were in the position, all right, of being someone who's been defiled by a dead body. Everything and everyone that they touched became unclean. So what he's saying to them is before they started to get back to work, before they got back into fellowship, they were not only defiled themselves, because individually they were out of fellowship with God, but the truth was that they were defiling everything that they touched and they weren't therefore getting the blessing that God wanted to give them. And in this list, we you know we saw the you know the Lord saying that for instance, whatever they needed, there was never enough. Now, when we saw the first prophecy last week, that was part of it. You know, you sort of have clothes, but you're not warm enough. You know, you have drink, but you're still thirsty. You earn wages, you put it into a pocket with holes in. What the Lord was saying is that His blessing was not upon them because they were out of fellowship with Him. So because they were out of fellowship, it wasn't just that they were defiled individually, but everything they touched was becoming defiled as well, i.e. their sinful condition was spreading into every aspect of their lives and other people's lives and the life of the nation. All right. So this is what the Lord was saying to them. All right. And of course, what we've got here is the Lord saying that when uncleanness comes in, you've got to be so careful because it spreads like wildfire. And what the Lord goes on to tell them in the prophecy, really, he's warning them that even though now they're back in fellowship, even though now God's blessing is on them, he says, from this day on I will bless you because you're back to work. But he's warning them that the moment that if they go back to how they were and get out of fellowship again, all that blessing will stop and they'll go back to this defilement. And we saw that for them it was things like spiritual harvests, uh, sorry, physical harvests, but for us the equivalent is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And of course the point is that we saw that what characterised the people while they weren't serving the Lord and putting him first what characterised them is they weren't getting anywhere. It didn't matter you know, how much they put into it, their harvests were no good. And so one of the characteristics of Christians who aren't truly sold out to the Lord is as the years go by, the fruit of the Spirit isn't developing in their lives. I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're where they, you know, now they're still where they were 10 years ago. They're just not growing all right. 
but now they're back in fellowship but the Lord is saying be careful because if you get back out of fellowship again the whole thing will start to happen again and the reason is that the moment that happens you're defiled as it were by touching the dead body and then everything you touch you spread your defilement and of course that is the opposite to what true fellowship is supposed to be when we're supposed to be all the time touching other people with holiness doesn't necessarily make them holy in actual fact it might make them mad it often does doesn't it but the point is you cannot you know sort of like make someone holy but my goodness we do know how easy it is to defile each other don't we if you go to uh, to 1 Corinthians and we'll see this uh, dealt with in, in, in the New Testament you'll see exactly the same you know kind of principle in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 6 to 8 remember what we're seeing is that God is reminding the people look you're back in fellowship now so I'm going to bless you but if you get out of fellowship you'll just go back to what was happening before and that defilement that uncleanness will touch every act progressively touch every aspect of your life personally and your lives in regard uh, in regards to other people around you so relationships would deteriorate for instance now 1 Corinthians chapter 5 uh, and verse 6 and Paul says now he's written to them because they've got someone in the church who's in such he's in an ongoing sexual sin that is so outrageous that Paul is saying why have you not put him out of the church and Paul's saying for heaven's sake what, what are you playing at tolerating this bloke he says your boasting is not good don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough get rid of the old yeast it's the old nature that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed therefore let us keep the festival not with the old yeast the yeast of malice and wickedness but with bread without yeast the bread of sincerity and truth now Paul's harking back to the Passover and you'll remember the night that Israel came out of Egypt, what happened was God said the angel of death is going to pass over every house and the firstborn in every house is going to die, whether, you know, sort of like human or uh, beasts of the field, all right? But he says anywhere that's got the blood of the lamb, the angel of death will pass over. But before they actually ate the Passover, i.e. the lamb that they sacrificed in order to daub the blood, they had um, the... the, um, uh, the unleavened bread feast and what this was they ate bread with no leaven in it at all and they had to go out throughout their whole house you know total spring clean to make sure that there was no yeast in it at all now the picture there is that if we're saved all right by the lord then part of following the lord is that we we consistently clear out the yeast in our lives and the yeast is a picture of sinfulness here Remember, Jesus warned the disciples against the yeast of the Pharisees. And of course, the point about the yeast is you only have a little bit of yeast, but it affects the whole batch of bread. So a tiny little bit of yeast, but it, 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 its effect is on the whole lump of dough. And of course, what Paul goes on to say is he says, look, you've actually got people amongst you in fellowship with you who are in unrepentant sin in such a way that they're actually contaminating the fellowship. 
Therefore, you must have nothing to do with them unless they actually repent. And of course, what Paul is saying, their uncleanness, their unholiness, their defilement, because they're not right with God, is don't think that you're going to pull them up. You're not. They're going to drag you down. And that's why Paul says there is a time to not have fellowship with people, precisely for that reason. If you go to Hebrews chapter 12, exactly the, the same point. Hebrews chapter 12, and starting from verse 14, he said, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. And of course, what he's warning them of in this fellowship, he says, look, if there are people who become bitter, they get out of fellowship with God, they're out of fellowship with other people, there's malice in their heart, relationships break down. And he's saying that what happens is that will defile the many. It won't just be there in isolation, it spreads. So like someone who's touched with their body, they've been defiled until such time as they've been made clean again, they will defile everything that they touch. So therefore, Paul says, get rid of the yeast. So only, you know, it might only be a little bit, but my goodness, it will affect the whole batch of dough. And here the writer says, now look, if, if, if you've got a root of bitterness in people's hearts, if that's not dealt with, it will defile the many. And so you see this warning that sin, out of fellowshipness, will always spread and it will always defile. So what he's saying to them, they're now back in fellowship, because they are, they're back on the temple. And he's just encouraged them, saying, look, don't, you know, don't worry that it seems small to you. Actually, what you're doing is absolutely brilliant. And the Lord has been encouraging them. But he warns them, all right, that if they lapse again, as they had done 15 years earlier, then the point is that, I mean, you know, having laid the foundation, having got back to work, if they lapse again, they're going to be back into all the old problems that they've just been rescued from because they've got right with God and they're building the temple again. So the Lord is warning them. You know, the first prophecy was saying, here's the problem, well, the people have repented. But now in prophecy number three, the Lord having encouraged them in prophecy number two, he now goes on to say, but don't lapse again. Don't go and get yourself defiled. Don't get out of fellowship. Don't go back to putting what you want first and your house first, blah, 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 so to speak. He's saying, look, if you do, you'll go back to no fruit, no blessing. And what you'll find is that you'll deteriorate spiritually. The blessing won't be there. The fruit of the Spirit won't be there. Relationships will break down. Prayer will go cold, whatever. I mean, crumbs. Prayer's hard enough when you're in fellowship. That's what I find. That like when you're out of fellowship, for heaven's sake. But the point is, it's like gangrene. I mean, at one point, when Paul talks about the dangers of false teaching getting in, he says it spreads like gangrene. You know, gangrene is sort of like when a bit of your body dies, and that spreads. If you've got gangrene in your leg, or in your arm, or something, the point is, the fact that most of your body is alive is not going to heal the gangrene. 
If you don't deal with the gangrene, the gangrene, which is basically dead flesh, will kill whatever flesh is around it, and you'll die. That's why when you get gangrene, it's off, off with the leg. And just pray you never get it in your cheek. Because <laughs> that'd be off with your head. And that's the warning that Paul gives. He likens it to gang. Cancer is a good way to think of it because it spreads. And so this is what is God saying. If you lapse, then you're going to go back to all those old problems and it will just spread through every area um, of life. And so that is a warning to all of us at all times. I mean, thank you, Lord, as we're going to see in a moment, that nothing can take away our salvation. But my goodness, if we're not faithful to the Lord, the blessing of following the Lord can be taken away. My goodness. And, and where before there was peace and rest and joy, there, worry, anxiety, malice, resent, all sorts of things. We all know it from our own hearts. And he's warning them against that. And it's a warning that all of us need to take on board. And uh, th 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 there's that, that old chorus, you know, I mean, we had it in Sunday school, so it's quite an old one. Uh, but it's, it's absolutely true. And the chorus is, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And, you know, sort of like part of the ongoing fruit is being happy in Jesus. But if that blessing is taken away, we're not happy in Jesus. Well, when that's happening, it's all worth saying, well, am I trusting and am I obeying? So here the Lord's saying, look, don't slip back. It's great. You've, you know, you're back online. You're doing a great work. We're there. Fantastic. I'm with you. From this day on, I'm going to bless you because you're back at the work. But he's saying, but oh, don't slip. He's warning them, don't slip. Because if you do, it'll, oh, the whole process will start all over again. Right, okay, now we move on to message number four. The last one. And this is verse 20. And it's this. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel governor of Judah, that I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. And with that, the book finishes. You think, well, what, what, what on earth is this? Well, what you've got, you've got Zerubbabel, all, all this stuff about shaking the heavens and the earth and overturning royal thrones, all that's the second coming, when Jesus comes to eventually establish his kingdom on earth. And you've got this, this, this talk about uh, you know, being made like a signet ring. So you've got Zerubbabel, the second coming, and the signet ring. What on earth is going on here? Right, okay. The signet ring in the ancient world was the king's seal. When he made an edict or wrote a letter, he'd get wax 
you know, like close the envelope like, or the scroll, it didn't have envelopes, the scroll, and get a dollop of melted wax on it. And the king would have a signet ring, which was unique. No one else had a ring like this. And while the wax was still, like, wet, hot, he'd stamp it with the ring, take the ring off, and the wax has the seal of his signet ring. It has sealed that scroll, all right? And, of course, what this represented, because if you broke a king's seal without royal permission, so if, as it were, you open a letter that the king has written to someone else, not you, it was instant death penalty. So the point is, when the king sealed something with his signet ring, whatever that was, that was safe. It was perfectly secure. It was guaranteed that it was going to get where the king wanted it to go. Now, Zerubbabel, we saw, Cyrus made him the governor when he sent him back. But we saw that Zerubbabel, although obviously the line of the, the kings of Judah had been interrupted by the captivity, but what we saw, he was the grandson of Jehoiakim. And the point is that had there been a king in Israel at this time, Cyrus only allowed a governor, not at this point a king. But had there been a king, it would have been this bloke. It would have been Zerubbabel. He was the next in line. So he, he was Israel's uh, proper king at that time. And because we're talking about the line, uh, the line of Judah, therefore his significance is that he is messianic. He's in the messianic line. The Messiah was going to be the son of David, and Zerubbabel is a son of David. He's in the line of David. Also, Joshua is the name of his high priest. So you've got the king, and you've got the high priest. The high priest's name, incidentally, is Joshua, which in Hebrew is Yeshua, which then gets translated into English, Jesus. Zerubbabel is a messianic figure, Jesus is the king, and Jesus is our great high priest. So you've got a guarantee here. This is a kind of, it's a bit coded, but they understood it. This is God's promise. Messiah is coming. And they're building the temple he's going to come to. You see, God's saying, it's not Tim Pot. Because Messiah's coming, and he's going to be in that temple. So we've got a guarantee there of Messiah coming, and we see there that they're a link in that chain. Whether they live to see it or not is neither here nor there. Messiah's coming, and them, in building this, what they saw, Tim Pot Little Temple, they're, they're playing a part in that coming. So what they were doing was tremendously important. So here, God is giving them a guarantee that the work that you're doing, however small thing, However small potatoes it seems to you lot is actually part and parcel of Messiah coming and I give you my guarantee that Messiah is going to come. And who is the guarantee? It's Zerubbabel because Zerubbabel was the, should have been king and he was a son of David. Messiah was going to be an ancestor of Zerubbabel. So God is giving them a guarantee of something that is going to happen. Now, ultimately, when a king seals something, people do open it when they shouldn't. But we can be absolutely sure when God seals something, no one can open it. Do you remember, in Revelation, 
when the books are opened and then the seals come. And these are the judgments of God on the earth during the Great Tribulation. And it says, no one was found worthy to open the scroll. No one was found worthy to break the seal. And who, who, who broke them? Well, one like a lamb of God that was slain. See, only God can open something that he sealed. It's totally safe. It's 100% safe. And you see, we've got a seal. We've got a guarantee. They had theirs, but we have a guarantee for ourselves. And it's this. Go to Ephesians. Ephesians, chapter 1. Verse 13. And Paul says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. What Paul's saying, when you believed on Jesus, when you were born again, it's as it were you were sort of like, you know, a bit of melted wax on an envelope and the Lord kind of he marked you with his seal. And your salvation cannot be touched by you or anyone else. It's a guarantee that you're going to get to glory. If you go to um, chapter 4, verse 30, He says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Now, the day of redemption here is when eventually, ultimately, having died, or if, if you're alive when the rapture comes, you're glorified like Jesus. You were made sinless just like him. And Paul's saying, you have the Holy Spirit. The fact that you've got the Holy Spirit is the guarantee that you are saved and that you are going to get to glory. Oh, how do you know if you've got the Holy Spirit? Well, because if you acknowledge in your heart that Jesus is Lord, it's only the Holy Spirit enabling you to do that. Not saying, oh, Jesus is Lord is just a kind of, you know, but sort of like serving him as Lord. You know that you have the Holy Spirit. You know that you are sealed. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, when you became a Christian, God posted you to heaven and you're going to get there. There is nothing that can stop you from getting there because the seal is the Holy Spirit. And unless you know anyone or anything that is stronger than the Holy Spirit, you're going to get there. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. Paul says, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us. That's why you're going to get there, because you're God's property. And I mean, you know, a man should have his possessions in his own home. And that's why God's going to get us to heaven one day, into his mansions. Because we're his property. And nothing, no one, is going to stop him doing it. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. 
Well, if you go and buy something, you say, all right, I'll have that in a shop, you can put a deposit on it, and they'll hold it until the final payment. Well, I mean, God's holding you until you get glorified. That final payment's going to come. And the Holy Spirit is the one who absolutely makes sure that nothing can ever get in the way of our ultimate salvation. Still 2 Corinthians, but uh, chapter 5 and verse 5. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And uh, you'll remember that verse uh, from the first talk on Haggai. We were seeing that was all to do with the glorified body. And that's what ultimate salvation is, is, is eventually about. We are going to be glorified. Future salvation. We are going to be set free, not just from the penalty of sin, that's justification, not just from the presence, uh, the power of sin, that's sanctification, that's here and now, but we're going to be set free from the very presence of sin because we're going to be glorified in the future and we're not going to have a sinful nature. We are going to be just like Jesus in that respect. We won't be just like Jesus in the fact of being God, because he and the Father and the Holy Spirit alone are God, but we're going to be like him in every other respect. That is where we're headed for. And we've been posted, and we've been sealed, and the seal is the Holy Spirit. Now there's something else very interesting. This word seal in the Greek, all right, is uh, arabon. That's the Greek word for it. And in, in modern Greek, current usage, the word arabona, which is like the modern equivalent to Koine or ancient Greeks, arabon, the, the current word arabona is the Greek word for an engagement ring. An engagement ring. We're engaged to the Lord. And of course, uh, you know, sort of like uh, for the Jews at the time of Jesus, an engagement was so binding you actually needed a divorce to break an engagement. And this is, this is the picture. The Holy Spirit is our engagement ring because as the church, we're female to Christ being male, obviously, we are betrothed to him. Now, 2 Corinthians still, but go forward to chapter 11. And in verse 2, look what Paul says. He says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. And the point is Jesus, as it were, is going to have that marriage to the church corporately. Can you see the picture? And it's marriage because you cannot get down here on earth, you cannot picture, you cannot have a closer relationship than man and wife. It goes much further than parent to child or child to parent or brother to sister because of the one flesh. It's the closest relationship that there is. Because that is how we're going to be, that is the closeness we're going to have with Jesus when we're in glory when we're with him for eternity, when we are glorified. And of course, the Holy Spirit is our guarantee that we will have this completed salvation. There is absolutely nothing that can prevent it. Go back to Ephesians 1.
I'm just going to read the last, the very last bit, all right, of the prophecy in Haggai, the very last bit. He says, For I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Now that, that's, that's what it's all based on. This guarantee that God is giving to them and to Zerubbabel is all based on the fact, well, of course it's a guarantee. I chose you. And the choosing was done by God. Now then, Ephesians, we saw, didn't we, in, chapter, in verse 21 and 22, we saw, um, sorry, in 13 and 14, we saw Paul say, and having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, all right? But just go back to the couple of verses in front. And verse 11. In him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And Paul says the basis of this, of, of, of this guarantee, as for Zerubbabel, was the fact that God's chosen us. Why am I going to heaven? Because I've turned to Jesus. My sins have been forgiven by his grace. Yes. Why did I turn to Jesus? Because God had chosen me for salvation. Because God had predestined me. Because God had put his hand on me and made me aware of something that I couldn't have been aware of unless he enabled me to. And made me desire something that I couldn't have even desired unless he has made, made me want to desire it. And that was to follow Jesus and to be saved and to serve him. And so the point is, because God chooses someone, that is the guarantee that they're going to be saved. When salvation is all tied up with, with continuing to be faithful to the Lord, and I'm certainly not kind of advocating not being faithful to the Lord, of course we should be faithful to the Lord. But the point is, that people who believe that salvation can be lost, it's all kind of tied up with, well, you've come to the Lord and now you've got to do your bit. As if somehow this was all down to you, as it were. That this is something that you do. It's not. It's something that God does. Because God has chosen us. Behind our decision to follow Jesus was God's decision uh, that we would follow Jesus. And so the point is, I'm not saved. I didn't get saved by being good or doing anything good. I got saved because Jesus chose me to be saved. So therefore, if I'm saved quite irrespective of anything I've done, how could I possibly lose my salvation and not get to heaven through anything I do or don't do? It's crazy. The basis of that absolute guarantee that we're going to get there and be glorified is the fact that God has chosen us and he set his seal on us and that seal is the Holy Spirit who enables us to say Jesus is Lord and to follow Jesus as Lord in our day-to-day -day lives. That is eternal security. We're going to get there. We've been posted. We're in God's royal mail system and we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And unless you know, as I said earlier, of anyone or anything stronger than the Holy Spirit, do you remember, Jesus said, you know, my, my father, you know, is greater than everyone and, and none can pluck them out of my hand. Well, of course they can't because you've got to be stronger 
than the Father. You've got to be stronger than Jesus. You've got to be stronger than the Holy Spirit to take away someone's salvation. So, is Satan strong enough to do it? Not in a million years. Is someone else strong enough to do it? Uh Uh-uh. But here's the best bit. I'm not strong enough to take away my salvation either. My salvation isn't only sin-proof, it's me-proof. And if it wasn't, what good would it be? Because if it wasn't me-proof, of course I'd lose it. If anything depended on me, I'd be a goner, but it doesn't. And of course, this as well ties back with what Haggai was earlier prophesying to them in message number two, the thing about the day of small things. It's simply this, at the end of the day, if you don't see the great things that you long to see and are praying to see, you might. But if you don't, it doesn't matter as long as it's God's will. That's all that matters, being in God's will, being faithful to him. But now the other thing that we've got to see as well is that, of course it doesn't matter, because the point is, the really big thing is going to happen anyway. We're going to get glorified. That's the really big thing. And everything else that happens in this life is minuscule compared to the eternity of being glorified with the Lord. Everything will pale into insignificance compared to that. So the point is often we say we long to see God do great things, and we do, and it's right, and I pray we will see those great things. I believe we will. But at the end of the day, if we don't in this life, because after all the Lord could come back tomorrow, but wow, but then the great things actually start. The really great things. Can you see the point? The whole of this life actually is a day of small things. If we ended up in the midst of the biggest revival we've ever seen in human history, if we were to end up in the midst of the most remarkable outpouring of miracles that anyone has ever seen bar those with Jesus himself when he was alive, if we were to end up in the midst of that, it would still be as nothing compared to when we're glorified with Jesus throughout eternity. And remember, down here, it's not, you know, I used to think it was kind of, you know, maybe the first chapter, but the rest of the book is heaven. Then as you grow a bit more in the Lord, you think, no, no, it's not the, no, 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 it's the preface. Yeah, it's the preface. All right. Well, actually, no, it's not, it's the contents page, if you think about it. Because you don't really get into it until you're glorified. Do you? I mean, look back on the holiest moment that you've ever had in your life when God just, those moments that are so holy, where you've totally forgotten about yourself because God is just there in that sort of a way. Think about that most holy moment you've ever experienced. Well, believe me, that's a title to a chapter. That's just a taster of what's to come. And when you open the book and look down the index, you're getting a taster of what's to come. That's not the meal. That's the menu. When we're glorified, we'll get the meal. So this tells us even more that we mustn't despise the day of small things. But we've just got to make sure, as with them, 
that they were available, that they were being faithful, that they were building their temple. And if at the end of the day it was a little tin pot temple compared to the Temple of Solomon, it doesn't matter. Because if God wants to do something tin pot, he can. That's his prerogative. He didn't just make stars and neutron stars and things like that. He made us with the ability to make tin cans. Can you imagine life without tin cans? You can't get more tin pot than tin can, but aren't they useful? Oh wow, where would we be without tin cans? So don't despise the day of small things, because it all fits into perfect place in God's plan, even though, I guarantee, we'll see it far better when we look back from glory than we do now. We, haven't, we don't know the half of it with the future. But it doesn't matter. As long as we're faithful, whatever God may be or seemingly may not be doing, doesn't matter as long as we're at peace knowing that we're in his will, being faithful to him. And remember the warning. At any point we can change that and we can start defiling ourselves and everything else. If that happens, we can put it right. But at the end of the day, just being right, just being faithful to the Lord now is all that matters. And, uh, you know, we live in a day of great talk about revival. I hope it's all true. I'm very unimpressed by the false claims when people are desperately trying to say that things are happening when patently they're not. That isn't just silly, that's actually dishonest. And it's not faith, it's unbelief. That is people needing to live by sight. We live by faith. That's why we don't actually need to see anything. All we need to see is whatever God wants us to see. And if he just wants us to have a little peeper, a little peep, that's fine if that's what he wants. But if he wants to give us a, a kind of a, you know, sort of like a, a, a 70 mil cinema view, he can do that as well. It's up to him, as long as we're in his will. Boom, boom. <laughs>